You can open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. I want us to start by thinking of Christmas stories, the, the classic Christmas stories that show up at this time of year. Most of them are owe more of their story to lore and legend than the story of Christ, but nonetheless, they have these artifacts of the true Christmas story that sort of hide in them. And in these stories, very often, you have a character or a... Uh, or a force that is against Christmas. Um, the Grinch. He looks down from his mountain at this little town way down low and their joy and the way they're wasting by giving gifts and he just, he has to stop it. Mr. Scrooge. He's another one. Where to him... To pause at Christmas seems frivolous given what could be gained through productivity. Mr. Potter, and it's a Christmas, uh, Christmas story, same sort of thing. It's a wonderful life, right? Same sort of thing. These, these individuals play kind of like the, almost the role of a little devil in the story, of, um, the, of, a, of a, a person who's dreaming of a world without Christmas, Last night, my family and I, we watched Elf. And in Elf, Buddy's dad is this guy. You know, he's, uh, he, he has no time for his family. He has no time for Christmas. He's too busy working. Right? He's, he's in the real world. This idea of two different worlds to choose from that travels in many Christmas stories, or the clash of worlds, <clears throat> is a very real thing, even in our own lives. I think in our own lives, it's not, it's, it's not that unfamiliar of us to know of, have a feeling like there's been a boss at some point in our life, or an executive, or a commander, or someone way above who, who looks down on all the little people, who you feel perhaps like you're the little people, and they're looking down, and somehow because they've ascended the ranks or the ladder, you, because you look smaller from their perch point, you are smaller. This is a feeling. Whether it is a boss or a commander or elected civil servants or the super wealthy or the global elite, these are different. You pick your cabal, Right? We all have one whose prosperity is built on the backs of other people's hardship. That's the, the sense. And either they don't get it, like they're so far away, distance does breed a sort of culpable ignorance of the impact, right? Distance breeds culpability for impact. And, and a, and a not, you know, maybe they don't get it or they don't care or worse. The higher up you get the smaller the people under you look. That's just how it works. And for some people, they start to turn from people into resources. Or worse, the problem. I have a friend who is speaking to me about, you know, 
he was in one of these environments where there was someone on high who would squash anything for their own advantage. And he said this to me, they would step on the back of an ant to gain a height advantage. And that kind of said it, right? They would, they would thoughtlessly snuff you out even if you really didn't even have much to offer them. When you're higher up, people look small like ants or resources. This issue is in us. I'd call, I'm going to call it the way of the man. Okay, so it's easy for us to have someone in mind when I talk this way and we say it's their problem, it's them, but it's not theirs. It's not a Bezos problem. It's not a Zuckerberg problem. It's a mankind problem. It's not a Xi Jinping problem. It's a human problem. It's always been around. Pharaoh did this. Caesar did this. Even King David did this when he took Uriah's wife. The higher you get up, the smaller people look around you. That's the man. This is, in fact, one of the ways Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. This is in Luke. Here's what it says. It says, And the devil took him up. Interesting, by the way, that he took him up. Some manuscripts say up to a mountain. So why? So he could look down on the little people. It's, there's, there's a poetic irony here. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Hey, and I can give these to you, he says. Just bend the knee. Notice, notice you have this vertical disparity of come up with me and, and it'll all look small. And then notice the enemy's willingness to trade with you. You're offered on the table. That's how small you are. Now, our Lord prevailed over this temptation, but I would say this, this is a pretty good trick and it works on us all the time. This worldview is in us and it competes for us and you might not think it's there, but I would just say a little bit of power and a little bit of wealth will expose it. It's there, it just needs to be watered. This is the way of the man. And today what I want to do, uh, and we, should, we all know this very familiar, it even shows up in our Christmas lore. I want to take the way of the man and set it next to the way of God today in the scriptures. Or another way of saying it, I want to take the man and set him alongside the son of man and see who wins. And so after we do that this morning, and we're very familiar with the way of the man, uh, and we're going to reflect upon the way of Christ. But when we're all done with that this morning, we'll pick. You get to pick which one are you going to follow. Um, that's how we'll end the day. So Hebrews 2 it is. The book of Hebrews, just to, <clears throat> in case you're kind of a guest or new in, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews for a few weeks now. The book is likely addressed to a community of Christians who have come out of Jewish heritage. They have a very rich heritage in Judaism. And they're trying to fit Jesus into their Judaism. And the writer of this book is saying, you have all of, that's all wrong. You actually need to fit your Judaism into Jesus. Like, he is turning, the sock is inside out, is what he's saying. You're looking at it the whole wrong way. And so he's going to be arguing for the role and ministry of Jesus Christ. And he does it, by the way, with a very distinctive Hebrew flair, which for us sometimes makes the book a little hard to follow. Um, but he's doing it to be attentive to the way 
his readers are listening. And the, the first week we started with the, the high seat of Christ. He's the Son of God. He's divine. He's seated with the Lord. He's way above angels and he's way, way above humanity. That's how the book starts right out the gate. And by last Sunday, we were uh, at verse 9, we, was, we saw that, and he came down and tasted death for everyone. So this, this son of God who is God and is superior to everything also came down and tasted death for us. And so today what we're going to start to do is unravel the why about this. Why did it happen the way it happened? Why did Jesus have to come and become man and die? This Hebrews is starting to turn around this question. And uh, we're going we're gonna to follow where they go. <clears throat> All right. Hebrews 2, verse 10. Which, by the way, is uh, that verse alone is, is probably the center verse of the better half of the book of Hebrews. So we're going to spend most of our time in verse 10. I'm going to read through it once. It's a fairly complex thought, and then we'll parse it out and unravel it over a little bit of time. But here's Hebrews 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's the sentence. So I'm going to do with you what I had to do myself, which was slow down, chop it up by phrase, unravel the mess, and like uh, come back to it for meaning. So let's, let's begin to parse it up here. Here's the first part of it. For it is fitting that he... It's fitting that he, first of all, he is God. So you could say just as easily, for it is fitting that God, in fact, some of your translations might have that. And the phrase, the phrase for it was fitting, is really belongs to a pretty small Greek word that is looking above itself at what has just passed. So what's just passed in Hebrews 2 is God saying that he who was above all things for a short period of time became, took on flesh put himself below the heavenly realm, tasted death for us in salvation. He's speaking of Jesus. Verse 10 in what follows is beginning the explanation of that. Like, why did that happen? So he's saying, for it's fitting. And in light of what happened, you should understand. You should understand why it happened. This is kind of how, how, how this first phrase means. And then you have the second phrase, which is for whom and by whom all things exist. That's the he, right? That's God. For whom and by whom all things exist. Which makes me think of this, by the way, and uh, the man, the man doesn't think twice about using people as resources, using you up, taking, reallocating. The man assumes your desperate need of centralized control, okay? That's how it is. It's how it always has been. It's how it's going to be. We should know God, who actually has the right to do that, doesn't. Here it is, God for whom and by whom all things were created. 
God, all by himself, literally has the right to view you as a resource. He has the right to use this world in whatever way he wants. He has a right to look down on the mess that mankind has made and hit delete, or control alt delete, or edit. He has that right. It's his. I just mention that because I, I do perceive as kind of something that seems co- connected to the spirit of the age is a view that God owes us something. Someone in the first service said to me afterwards, it seems like entitlement. There's some, you know, I'll hear it in conversations, kind of like if there's a God, well, he really needs to explain this. Or I'll tell you what, when I get to heaven, I got a lot of questions for him. You know, as though he's going to be curious about your questions or that you'll get a chance to speak or that you're going to heaven. (laughs) It's his. There's something in us, though, that says, I don't know, I look around me, I see what, I tell you what, why has he made my life this way? And it's just a good reminder. The universe was made for him and by him. It belongs to him. We may have made a mess of things, but it's his. We don't seem to expect this much attention from the man. That's what I find interesting is, is we have this sense of like entitled attention from God that when we think of the man, we don't ever really seem to expect. There's a, maybe it's the presumption, by the way, that God is good and that the man is against us. Like, the man is not curious to know how I feel. I'm a resource or I'm a problem. But maybe there's this thought of, well, yeah, but God claims to be good. Maybe that's what's behind that. Here's the next phrase. <clears throat> so, for it's fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, here it is, in bringing many sons to glory. You could say salvation. Right? In bringing many sons to glory. The one for whom and by whom all things exist has decided not to hit the delete button, but in fact to rescue you. That's what he's saying. He looks at the problem and he does not respond to the problem like the man responds to the problem. The man solves the problem with layoffs. Downsizing. Pay cutting. Product reduction. Streamlining resources. That's how the man does it. God looks down on the problem that he did not make, by the way. And he decides to bring many of us to him. That's what is being said here. There's not some other goal here, which is worth appreciating. The chief goal of God is not to preserve the planet. The chief goal of God is not to solve, 
I want to say this carefully. Uh, eventually, world peace will be solved. Eventually, hunger will be These things are, you might say they're in the grand telos of things, but they're not seen as like the mission of God. It's not like, hey, we're okay. There's just a little bit of a, a hunger problem going on around here. That's not it. The, the, the problem the Lord goes after is us. We are his goal. I find it interesting that the, the man tries to influence, influence us with lesser goals, which always seem to cost more life than they spare. You know, we got this about the planet or this about this country or this about, right? The, this, the, the, the whip to say run harder always seems to have some lesser goal. God, who actually owns everything, actually owns all of it, is after you. And bringing many sons to glory. You're not a resource. You're a son or a daughter. Think about that for a second. So it's fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. Now this last sentence is kind of long. I'm going to read the whole sentence, but we'll, we'll figure it out in phrase by phrase. Should make the founder of their salvation... That's the first phrase. The second one is perfect through suffering, but we're going to just work on the founder of their salvation. Who's that? That's Jesus. So the he is God. The founder is Jesus. The word founder in the Greek has a broad meaning. In fact, there's probably a half dozen translations in this room of this word that sound different. It could be it could be source, captain, pioneer, leader, author. The word is, the Greek word, just to, it's kind of fun, is archego. Just a, that's, that's a flashy. If I had a band, I'd think about that one. <laughs> but the, it, what it has in it, by the way, this is the, the bigness of the word gives it a kind of broadness of the, the idea is, is big enough it finds its place in other ways. He's not simply a guide. He's not guiding us to salvation because a guide, it presupposes there's a trail. He's the trail. But he's not just the trail because the trail implies you can find your way, just walk on the trail. He's also the guide. He's the trail blazer. That's where you get pioneer from. He is hacking down the path for your salvation. In order for the Lord to bring many sons to glory, the trailblazer has to come and hack a path. He's the front man on the thing and you follow behind him. He leads and he's the trail. The source, if he's the source of things like some translations, it'd be like he's not just the river, he's the spring. He's not the water. He's not just the water. He's the fount of the water. If he's the author, he's not just the main character in the book. He's the writer of the story. Do you see there's two shelves to this? There's two shelves to this idea. Of like He's not just doing it. He's like the source of the whole thing happening. That's what's in this word founder. should make the founder, 
the trailblazer of their salvation. And this is the last phrase, perfect through suffering. Now someone might see this at first and first start getting nervous, like did Jesus evolve from imperfect to perfect? Is that what this is saying? That's not really what the text is trying to get at is something more like this. God marked out the way of suffering and the founder walked it perfectly. That's what's the implication here is the way was marked. God, Jesus, our founder, our source, our captain, our pioneer has demonstrated his perfection by the way he walked the path of suffering. And it, we should appreciate the path of suffering is not incidental to the whole thing. It didn't just happen to be a path of suffering. The path of suffering is instrumental to our founder saving us. It's an orchestrated, it's not a bug in the system. It's a central feature to the system. Jesus didn't suffer because, you know, he just didn't know how to keep his big mouth shut. He suffered in order to save you. And he did it perfectly. Perfectly. It's not like maybe a wiser man could have come along and found a, a better path of least resistance. No. The path of suffering is the path. And there's only one person who could have blazed that path. And it's Jesus, and he blazed it perfectly. Perfectly. And you follow in it. That's what he's saying here. Sometimes in our own lives, when a, because we're on the same path, by the way, we get a nick or a scratch. A thorn catches us, right? Life isn't so hard, and we respond to the Lord along his path. Like, what's going on, Lord? I got questions for you when I see you. Boy, we the holy finger wag. God, I thought you cared about me. The path of suffering that you're on that's leading you to salvation because the maker of all things for some reason wants you. As a son and daughter, that path was blazed by none other than his son and he did it perfectly. Why are you surprised you're on it? And our Lord has the cuts to prove it, right? The holes, the thorns, the rejection, the betrayal. He blazed it. Now this is not how the man behaves. But this is what the son of man did. And they're different. The man will use you in order to ascend. The Son of Man, though entirely ascendant, came to get you through a path of suffering. Those are the only two stories we got. And we have to pick. Verse 11 discusses an implication about this. It's, it's, uh, it's one of these, think of, just think about it implications, I think, in the reading. This is what verse 11 says. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have the same source. Some might say father. All have the same father. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. <clears throat> 
So here's the idea. The sanctifier, Jesus, and the sanctified, you and me, have the same Father, right? God, in bringing many sons to glory, sent his Son. You see that? So if, if he sent his Son to bring many sons and daughters to glory, what does that make his Son in us? It makes us brothers and sisters, right? He's our brother. That's what verse 11 sort of illuminates. He, Jesus, I want, the, the writer is tipping into the camaraderie, the human camaraderie of Jesus with people. He's saying, don't you see that the God in sending the son to come get us, that the son has become now our brother. And what ends up happening then is, in, we won't spend much time or really Anytime on 12 through 13, the, the writer, this is one of these distinctly Hebrew moments where the writer begins to sort of illuminate the Old Testament scriptures to the ears of the readers who have like held on to them with some sort of divine confusion for a long time. He says, don't you see it? Don't you see it? Stop fitting Jesus into Judaism and start fitting Judaism into Jesus. Don't you see it? Don't you see it? That's, what, that's what's going on in 12, 13, and 14. Psalm 22, it's messianic. Isaiah, these passages, he's saying, hey, it happened. Somehow, he who's bringing sons to glory shows up as a brother. He's saying it's explaining the text. So I'll pick up in 14. I'm going to read 14 and 15. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself... This is of Jesus. He himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So 14, we'll deal with 15 in a second. 14 shows this what the writer is saying is this necessary camaraderie with Jesus Christ. Necessary camaraderie with Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever seen search and rescue happen. I used to work with search and rescue. If you're over the water, a helicopter shows up, they have these guys, you call them PJs in the Air Force. Okay, there's pararescue men. They're awesome. Okay, they're the real deal. And they get over you and you're in a sinking boat and you're scared and you're down there, right? The, their training is not in how to project their voice. They don't sit in the helicopter and say, tread water. They jump. The pararescueman, in order to rescue you, gets wet. That's how it works. This is what he's saying. He's saying, in bringing many sons to glory, I sent my son to put himself, to subject himself to everything that you're subjected to, to put himself under the man so that he might rescue you from the man. So everything that you have in your life, Jesus understands it. All the weight you've carried, he's, he's familiar with that burden. He's familiar with it. If the sons and daughter of God are made of flesh and blood, so shall their brother Jesus Christ be. If the sons and daughters of God 
find themselves subject to the province and the principality of the enemy, so shall the Son of God be. If the sons and daughters of God are haunted by the gateway of death, the Son of God himself will come and blaze a path through it. He will blaze our path to salvation from where we are to where we're going. That's what the author's saying here. He didn't holler down a how-to. He became you and me so that as he hacked his way out, you could follow him. So that you know that what you're dealing with, he's dealt with. Just, I won't spend time on 18, but just notice it. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you see the empathy of our Lord here? From, and by the way, he, at the beginning of this, he was perched on high where you and I were really literally small. For him and by him, all things were made. He has the right to sit up high and say, fix yourself. He has the right to hit the delete button, but because of his, the only word we have for this is because of the great love of the Father. Right? He gets down with us and walks us out. So verse 15, right, Jesus has blazed a path through the devil, blazed a path through the grave, blazed a path through suffering. So 15, and deliver all those, th- listen to this, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you see that? What is our prison cell? Is it the devil? I'd say the devil might be a jailer, but the fear of death is your prison cell. That's what enslaves you. You might say the entire structure, that the fear of death is the chief instrument of manipulation that Satan uses in our life to tempt us, to reorient your life as he knows he knows. Several, several months ago, we talked about the scarcity, this worldview where there's scarcity of resources and how that sense of scarcity, like time is of the essence, I'm insecure, there's not enough around, the competition, the rat race, this need to do things and make things, because if I don't, this double up to catch up, right? All these things, like that spirit, that whole idea belongs, the man leverages that with great acumen to keep you imprisoned. It is the fear of death. Once you take two or three derivatives of it, you can justify almost every kind of behavior we take. This is the justification for nearly every kind of evil. And I find, by the way, just as a side note, the higher and higher a human being ascends, like in the human effort to become mythologically God themselves, like a pharaoh or the, the transhumanist movement right now, or whatever you want to talk about it, this effort to sort of escape the clutches of death, it is amazing how many people they'll kill to do it. The inhumanity of humans is typically done in the order of preservation of life. That's what we do in our fear of death. Jesus, he didn't have to. 
that out of God's love for us and bringing many sons to glory, offered his life. He's not the man. It's just, they couldn't be any farther apart. So, anyway, let me close this with three questions here. It's just, if, just to sit in this, the man takes the brothers of the Son of Man, like we, we're, we're, we receive from the Lord. Let's just offer some questions as we walk away. I think these questions are good enough to survive the lobby. Okay? I think their expiration date might at least be Monday. Okay? Does the man really have any salvation to offer you? That's an easy question. That one's easy. This is the second one that has state power. So why do we spend so much time giving him bandwidth? That's the question. Why are we so caught up in that game? That's the question. Here's another one. If the path that we walk with Jesus was perfectly blazed through suffering, what should we expect in our own life? If you're going to follow the forerunner of our faith, if you're going to put your spiritual foot in his footprint, where is it going to take you? Just think about that for a second before you wag your finger at the Lord next time something scratches your arm. And I'm saying this in real ways, right? We're really, death is really coming, but does it have stay power? Like, I'm not asking this theoretically. Some of you may be asking questions of mortality, right? God wants you to ask this question of mortality. It's out of you asking this that he's going to mine a simple word, faith. How you, how you live in the shadow and the omen of the grave is how God defines your faith. It's the length and the width and the height. of your. God wants to know how alive are you now. Some people grow so accustomed to the framework of death that you don't even want to leave your prison. Last question. Why does the fear of death still have power? You have to pick. There is the reality of the world, which is the man. We've seen it. We know it. We can complain about it. It's in us every bit as much as it's in them. They just have yachts. I give you a yacht. If you're not careful, you become the same person. And it's a shame that we don't think that. It feels good to look down on little people. It's a momentary balm if death is the reality. You have that world or you have the Son of Man. And you got to pick. You can't leave this morning and not pick. You have made your pick. Because there's only two ways to live. So which one is it? Let's pray. Lord, bless us as we go. In the midst of Christmas, Lord, and asking real questions about what you've done for us and seeking to be the joy of Christ in a world that 
is missing you, Lord. I pray that we would not be defined as people hounded by death, but that we'd be defined as free, that there'd be a divine freedom, um, a kind of serendipity about the people of God. I pray this would show up in good times and in hard times because to be on the path with Jesus Christ is to be on the path to eternal life. Guide us, Lord. With your heads bowed, I'm gonna just read the Magnificat one more time. I wanna read the Song of Mary. I want you to hear it with these ears. And we'll close with this. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, now all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Lord, we are this forever offspring. We pray this in the name of our forerunner, Jesus Christ. Amen.